This program is presented by Birch Gold Group, the precious metal IRA specialist. Good morning. In today's headlines, new details on the men accused of attacking House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband after breaking into their San Francisco home and his disturbing plot. Affirmative action in higher education hangs in the balance. Hear what Supreme Court justices had to say about it. A protest on the Mexican side of the border. Border Patrol agents resort to deploying non-lethal force to drive people back. Truckers block highways across Brazil. The protests are directed at the results of Sunday's presidential election. And NTD's sixth international piano competition comes down to the finals. Find out more about today's event at Kaufman Center in New York City. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today's Tuesday, November 1st. Those piano players are really good. There's something about classical music. It's so calming. Oh yeah, I totally agree. I really like it too. And there are some incredibly talented people in the finals today, um, by the way. So if you want to catch it, 1 p.m. Eastern time on NTD.com. But first, on a more serious note, we have updates on the man that attacked House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband with a hammer. He was in the country illegally. The DA's office also released details that he threatened to take Nancy Pelosi hostage and break her kneecaps if she lied under his questioning. And today's Daniel Monahan has that story. I am here today to formally announce charges against Mr. David DePath in connection with the violent attack on Mr. Pelosi. Those charges include attempted murder, burglary, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, as well as threats to a public official and their family. The DA says Mr. DePape specifically targeted the Pelosi home to confront Speaker Pelosi, forcing his way in by breaking the glass on a rear door. The defendant made his way upstairs to the second floor of the home, locating Mr. Pelosi in his bed sleeping. He woke him up, confronting him about the whereabouts of Speaker Pelosi. At some point, Mr. Pelosi asked to go to the bathroom, which is where he was able to call 911 from his cell phone. The police responded swiftly. Two police officers arrived at the front door two minutes after that 911 call. At the upscale Pacific Heights residence, police observed two men struggling over a hammer. DePape then struck Pelosi at least once before being tackled by officers. Police body camera footage shows the attack itself. Police later found a second hammer along with rope tape and a diary in DePape's backpack. DePape told investigators he wanted to talk to Speaker Pelosi and viewed her as the leader of the pack of lies told by the Democratic Party. House Speaker Pelosi says her husband is making steady progress on what will be a long recovery process. DePape is in the country illegally. He is a Canadian citizen who long overstayed his expired visa. His family described him as estranged. He was known by some in San Francisco as a pro-nudity activist. DePape allegedly lived with a notorious local nudist in a Berkeley home, complete with a Black Lives Matter sign in the window and an LGBT rainbow flag emblazoned with a marijuana symbol hanging from a tree. An arraignment is set for Tuesday. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
Paul Pelosi underwent surgery for skull fractures and injuries to his hands and right arm, and he remained hospitalized as of yesterday. DePap faces both federal and state charges. The federal charges carry a maximum sentence of 50 years in prison. The state charges are punishable by a sentence of 13 years to life. And Border Patrol agents shot at Venezuelan and Central American migrants with rubber bullets on Monday. The incident occurred during a protest that started on the Mexican side of the border earlier that day. One Venezuelan migrant was hit by rubber bullets on his neck and back. He said he was shot while he was standing in the river. In October, the United States announced a plan to grant up to 24,000 Venezuelans humanitarian entry via air travel if they had a U.S. sponsor. It was an effort to deter increasing border crossings driven by economic hardship in Venezuela. Under the policy, which was crafted with Mexico, the U.S. can also expel back over the border Venezuelans trying to cross illegally. In Ciudad Juarez, a makeshift camp with tents was built next to the Rio Grande by Venezuelan migrants who still hope to enter the U.S. despite the new policy. Supreme Court justices questioned the legality and merit of race-based admissions for colleges on Monday. The process known as affirmative action hangs in the balance. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the arguments heard yesterday. The court heard close to five hours of oral arguments for two cases Monday. Racial classifications are wrong. That principle was enshrined in our law at great cost following the Civil War. The cases involve Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. Just considering race and race alone is, is not consistent with the Constitution. Lawyers defending the schools honed in on the importance of diversity, with one calling it the nation's greatest source of strength. We live in a large and sometimes unwieldy democracy, and for that democracy to flourish, people of all different backgrounds and perspectives have to learn to live together and unite in common purpose. Justice Clarence Thomas asked for a specific definition of diversity with context. It seems to mean everything for everyone. And questioned the merits of the program. I'd also like you to give us a, uh, a clear idea of exactly uh, what the educational benefits of diversity at the University of North Carolina uh, would be. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson asked the plaintiffs for evidence of injury and for examples of how race actually factors into the admissions process. The university is not requiring anybody to give their race at the beginning. Um, when you give your race, you're not getting any special points. It's being treated just on par with other factors in the system. No one's automatically getting in because race is being used. Justice Samuel Alito called college admissions a zero-sum game. If you give a plus to a person who is an under, falls within the category of underrepresented uh, minority, but not to somebody else, you are disadvantaging the latter student. Plaintiffs claim the University of North Carolina discriminates against white and Asian American applicants and Harvard against Asian Americans. When asked if race in and of itself has an effect on the University of North Carolina, the defending lawyer replied absolutely not, but that the school supports the limited consideration of race as authorized by the court. I don't understand your answer. Either uh, if it's irrelevant, then you shouldn't care whether it's, it's ruled out. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett asked defendants when the end point for the program is. Rulings are due by the end of June. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News.
In other news, President Biden criticized oil companies on Monday. He says their record-breaking quarterly profits are a windfall from the war in Ukraine. He accused companies of profiting off surging prices while Americans pay more at the pump. You know, at a time of war, any company receiving historic windfall profits like this has a responsibility to act beyond their narrow self-interest of its executives and shareholders. I think they have a responsibility to act in the interest of their consumers, their community, and their country. These companies were making average profits they've been making by refining oil over the last 20 years instead of the outrageous profits they're making today. And if they passed the rest on to the consumers, the price of gas would come down around an additional 50 cents. The president said the oil company's profits were not from innovation, but from the conflict in Ukraine pushing up prices. Biden mentioned Shell, which made $9.5 billion in the third quarter, twice as much as their third quarter profits from 2021. He also mentioned ExxonMobil, which made $18.7 billion in the third quarter, which is the company's highest quarterly profit of all time. Biden also suggested a windfall tax on oil companies if they don't boost domestic production. Exxon and Chevron say the third quarter profit is due to long-term investment made during COVID-19. The industry has also argued the best way for the Biden administration to help American consumers is by encouraging more oil and gas production in the United States. Oil companies have also referenced the president's campaign to promise to end fossil fuel, which would discourage long-term investment strategy. In Nevada, the race for the Senate seat could be a tight one. Recent polls show the candidates neck and neck. The outcome could determine which party controls the chamber. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. A New York Times Siena College poll released yesterday has Nevada's two candidates for U.S. Senate tied. Both incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and Republican challenger Adam Laxalt were sitting at 47 percent. A poll conducted by CBS News and YouGov last week also had them tied. And another poll has Cortez Masto with a slight lead of two points. That survey group was slightly Democrat-leaning, with a majority answering they voted for Biden in 2020. Other recent polls have Laxalt with a slight lead. Nevada's Senate race could help determine which party controls the chamber. In an interview with Fox News, Laxalt said if Republicans take a majority, they will launch investigations. I hope we can get yeah. these gavels so we can start investigating, you know, big tech, for example, what they're doing at the close of these races by shadow banning us, by, by hiding our emails. 90% of our emails go to junk and only 10% of hers. That is straight up election interference. I hope we go on offense yeah. in the Senate if we take the majority and start holding them accountable. Cortez Masto says Laxalt helped fuel the January 6th Capitol breach by peddling conspiracy theories about the 2020 election and that there should be consequences for people who undermine democracy. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Predicting the outcome of the North Carolina election is turning out to be more difficult than ever. Almost 40% of voters are now registered with no affiliation to major parties. NTD's Flinders Kingsley tells us more. North Carolina voters are moving away from affiliation to the two major parties. For the first time in the state's history, the number of unaffiliated voters is more than voters registered with either Democrats or Republicans. I think you can look at them as a group and say that they're not extreme on either side. They're more moderate, and that makes them in play. 
A U.S. Senate seat is being vacated by retiring Republican Senator Richard Burr. The race to fill that vacancy is between three-term Republican Congressman Ted Budd and former state Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley. But with large numbers of unaffiliated voters, this year is especially difficult to predict. Yeah, I mean, usually by this point in the election cycle, you can kind of get a feel for how one party is going to do relative to the other party. This has been a very chaotic election season. Bud says Beasley is soft on violent crime and has tied her to inflation under President Biden. Beasley notes that Bud voted against certifying Biden's presidency in 2020 and says Bud supports a nationwide abortion ban. And I will fight like hell to make sure that Roe versus Wade becomes the law of the land. <laughs> Sherry Beasley, she's going to do things like defend cop killers and throw out indictments for sex offenders. That's why she's running away from her record. GOP newcomer Bo Hines is competing with state senator Wiley Nickel, a criminal defense attorney, for the redrawn 13th House district seat. Former President Trump has given his endorsement for both Bud and Hines. Flinders Kingsley, NTD News. In Brazil, truckers have blocked main highways in support of outgoing President Jair Bolsonaro. The protests have spread over 16 states and could impact agriculture exports. The protests aim to show the truckers' dissatisfaction with the results of the presidential election in Latin America's largest democracy. Truckers blocked the highway at 300 points across the country. The police chief was ordered to clear the blockage or be imprisoned if he refused. On Sunday night, Lula da Silva won re-election with 50.9% of the votes. The presidential election left Brazil deeply divided. Both sides believe the other is a threat to the country. One side fears da Silva will introduce socialism, while the other considers Bolsonaro a threat to democracy. Bolsonaro has yet to make a public response about his loss to his ideological rival. Sunday's election was Brazil's closest in three decades. Just ahead, tens of thousands of workers flee a Chinese iPhone plant. That's due to a new COVID outbreak last week. Find out about the conditions causing them to leave. And a competition committed to artistic excellence and promoting traditional arts. We spoke with contestants. That and more after the break. Welcome back. The United States and South Korea began one of their largest combined military air drills on Monday. It involves hundreds of warplanes from both sides staging mock attacks 24 hours a day. The operation is called Vigilant Storm and will run until Friday. The U.S. Air Force said the drills feature about 240 warplanes, including variants of the F-35 stealth fighter from both the U.S. and South Korea. Washington and Seoul believe Pyongyang may be about to resume testing of nuclear bombs for the first time since 2017. The two countries have embraced a strategy of deterring Pyongyang through major military drills. However, some current and former officials say the drills may increase tensions. North Korea on Monday demanded that the U.S. and South Korea stop the joint drills, calling them a provocation that may draw, quote, more powerful follow-up measures. A new COVID-19 outbreak inside a Chinese tech factory. It belongs to an Apple supplier that also is making components for devices like the iPhone. Employees of the Foxconn plant in Jinzhou City aren't taking it lightly. Fearing a possible closure, tens of thousands have fled the plant since last week. 
Videos and photos circulating online show them returning to their hometown on foot. Employees have been seen scaling the barbed wire fence in Foxconn's industrial park. Other videos capture the workers walking with their luggage late at night. With public transportation suspended, the workers have been left to walk along a nearby highway. Some locals set out food and water along the roadside for the travelers. Sunday morning, police were seen blocking some workers from entering the city center. The factory said only a small number of employees have been affected by the infection. But one employee told us he saw more than 100 people transported to quarantine centers in a single day. That's after their COVID-19 tests came back positive. He added that quarantine centers lack food and medical treatment. According to an official notice, the factory has taken various control measures. That's including a closed-loop management policy, where all workers are asked to live and work inside the factory. Amid concerns about cross-infection, some workers started leaving last week. Tenzo City Authority said Sunday that workers who want to leave the city may do so. Jinzhou City is a key part of the iPhone supply chain. Half of all iPhone production happens there. But things are changing. Apple has already started transferring some of that production to India. The Federal Trade Commission says millions of students' personal information has been exposed because of a tech firm's lax security. The federal agency has ordered the education tech provider known as Chegg to strengthen safeguards around its customers' data. Chegg's businesses include renting textbooks to students and scholarship search services. The FTC alleges the company failed to fix problems to secure the data it collects even after it was hit with four breaches since 2017. The breaches threatened the sensitive information of approximately 40 million customers. That includes social security numbers, email addresses and passwords. The FTC wants the company to take more protective actions such as bolstering security and limiting the data it collects in stores. Delta Airlines pilots are threatening to strike in a pilot's, in a, in a pilot's union vote. An overwhelming 99% voted to authorize a strike if necessary to get a new contract. The pilots say they are working with an outdated contract from 2016. The union says negotiations have been on and off for more than three years. If there was a strike, though, it wouldn't happen until after the Thanksgiving travel surge. Delta says negotiations have been progressing and airline officials say they are confident the company can reach an agreement with the pilots. On Monday, 11 semifinalists performed in NTD's sixth international piano competition. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. It's the semifinals in NTD's sixth international piano competition. 11 contestants are competing for that gold trophy. I spoke to some of the contestants about what it means to play traditional compositions. The mission of this competition is to promote traditional arts, bringing out the pure authenticity, goodness, and beauty. Semi-finalists were required to choose compositions from only the Baroque, Classical, and Romantic periods. Contestant Trinity Goff thinks contemporary music is important, but said traditional music is more uplifting. I do think it's also important to have more of a return to beauty for beauty's sake and not just, you know, music that brings you down to earth all the time, you know, because like you've got the pain and the ugliness of the earth and then you, I feel like contemporary composers have to bring you down all the time. Carolina Deniza said this competition was different from others she's participated in. 
In the other competition, you are much more concentrated on, you know, like the main pieces all the time, and you don't have really nothing to uh, discover. Like you just play what you always played in your education, and you do your best. In this competition, you have to. Uh, improve maybe something else and uh, study as well, something else, not just on piano. She said the requirements of this competition were a good fit for her. I usually prefer to play Baroque and classical music and like uh, romantic as well, but mostly Baroque and classic. So for me, it was easier somehow not to show the last, you know, classical period of the music because it's usually not in my repertoire, so I was lucky. Some contestants like contemporary and classical music, but distinguish the differences. Classical music is uh, absolutely great uh, with its um, clearness of the forms and uh, clearness of the textures. In the 20th century, every composer created his own style and uh, develops his own ideas that are sometimes completely different from each other. The competition is committed to artistic excellence that allows the 250-year legacy of piano to continue to flourish. The finals start tomorrow. You can watch it live-streamed on NTD.com, or you can purchase tickets at the Kaufman Center. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And coming up, a sixth grader, a World War II enthusiast, and now an author of his own book. We have the story of the 13-year-old using his passion to inspire other kids after the break. Welcome back. A 13-year-old is about to publish his first book next week. He has a passion to make people happy and hopes to inspire other kids to pursue their talents. And today spoke with him to find out how he achieved his dreams at such a young age. William Daniel might seem the same as any other sixth grader you might know. Well, I like building model airplanes, playing the saxophone and doing men's gymnastics. Except the 13-year-old is publishing his very first book next week, possibly making him one of the youngest authors to do so. I first came up with them in first and second grade. I just love sharing jokes and making people laugh. And so uh, my mom, my agent, one day said that, hey, Will, you could write a joke book. Author of the joke book, your joke. William aims to tell clean jokes that bring joy to everyone at every age without hurting someone. There's a lot of dark humor uh, in our world now, and that's not very funny. It's either against someone or it's just inappropriate, so one of my dreams was to write a joke book to show the correct way of doing humor. What are the challenges? Well, a lot of challenges I face are basically just blank expressions. Like, um, if I tell a joke and people don't think it's funny, blank expressions. Um, another challenge is, was coming up with all the jokes because in, some days I just ran out of creativity. All of his 450-plus jokes are his originals. He gets a lot of his humor from his dad, so it's, so it's so fun to watch the two of them share jokes together, too. I came up with a few myself, but they didn't make the cut. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, he has the support of his parents at every stage. I think it's important for parents to see potential in their child and help them 
move in the direction that their child wants to go. Not necessarily, it might not be the direction you think they should go in, but to be open and to encourage them in, in whatever resources you can to help move them in that direction. Well, I think the uh, biggest thing too is just, you know, we just want them to be a kid too. William is sure to write another book after this one, but he also has other dreams he'd like to follow, such as one day piloting a plane. You're never too old or too young to do something incredible. <laughs> Jokes for kids by a kid, and I hope to bring some inspiration to them, knowing that this book was written by a kid and thinking, oh, I can do that too, as well as reading and enjoying my jokes. Wow, what an amazing kid. I know, right? I mean, I read some of it, and he's really done a good job, and I've been keeping this one on my desk, actually. Oh, yeah, I know. Those are some really good jokes, and I like how he's trying to change it back to the way jokes used to be, clean and pure, like this one. What do the forks say to the knife? What? You look sharp. <laughs> good one. Uh, well, yes, it's some more art in there. We don't want to reveal too much, so stay tuned. His book will be out on November 8th. You can find the book in Barnes & Nobles, Amazon, Target, and Walmart online stores. It's called You're Joking Me, Jokes for Kids by, Jokes for Kids by a Kid. Very nice. And on to another story. On the 175th anniversary of its first railway, Switzerland went for a record. On Saturday, the country ran the world's longest passenger train through the Alps. The record-breaking train was 1.2 miles long with 100 cars. It traveled about 15 miles in one hour. Seven drivers and 21 technicians helped it travel along steep gradients, 22 tunnels, and 48 bridges. The run was organized by Ration Railway and Swiss train builder Stadler. Weren't you a train fan when you were a kid? Oh yeah, my dad always had us on the trains. I, I actually sat in the engineers, uh, in like at the helm, and you know, kind of wow. drove the train. <laughs> nice. All right, as always, that's before we wrap though, we'd love to hear from you. You can write us at goodmorning at ntd.com with any feedback or thoughts that you may have. That's it for today from us though. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.